this feels a little silly to start this way, but I think you'll understand why in a second. Um, how many of you are familiar with the movie What About Bob? I know this is probably going to get increasingly less, um, you know, fitting or relevant or whatever. It was 1991, I guess, this movie. So if you didn't see it, Dr. Leo Marvin is a successful and egotistical psychotherapist in New York City. And, you know, it's kind of like his career's taking off. He's got this new book and everything seems to be great. But um, one of his fellow psychotherapists pawns off one of her, I think it's a her, um, patients on him. And he basically loses his mind. <laughs> I know, funny enough, you caught that, right? Um, because this most dependent patient, Bob Wiley, tracks him down when he's on vacation. Um, Dr. Marvin can't get rid of him, and doctors, Dr. Marvin's family, too much to his chagrin, doesn't want to get rid of Bob, okay? So Dr. Marvin had a son named Siggy, okay? I'm not sure what that's short for. Sigmund, maybe? Freud? Oh, there, there you go. I'm just realizing things as I'm going along here. Okay, so he's a precocious little fellow. He's probably like 10 years old. And he really likes Bob. Um, they kind of hit it off. You know, they're playing and talking like long-lost friends. And one night, Siggy asked Bob a question. Are you afraid of death? And Bob says, yeah. Siggy says, me too. And he's kind of melodramatic about this. There's no way out of it. You're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. What difference does it make if it's tomorrow or in 80 years, much sooner in your case? He's speaking to Bob. Do you know how fast time goes? I was six, like yesterday. He's like 10 in the movie, okay. And Bob said, me too, as in I was six yesterday as well. And then Siggy says, I'm gonna die, you're gonna die. What else is there to be afraid of? So what else is there to be afraid of? I mean, in one sense, <laughs> a lot, right? There's lots of stuff to be afraid of, perhaps. But underneath it all, our fear of death quietly rules us. We're more controlled by it than we realize. I mean, why do some men do crazy things in midlife? The sports car, the new youthful clothes or hairstyle, or the new trophy wife? Maybe he's lost in the middle, feels dead already while he lives, and death is coming quickly, and being around that younger woman makes him feel alive again. Some of the physically strongest people I know are very afraid of death. It's very awkward to bring it up. In fact, for some, physical fitness is underneath a frantic attempt to stave off or to slow down the approach of death. Nobody is invincible. Nobody is strong enough to take on death. Seen Arnold Schwarzenegger lately? Okay, so he would still whoop me in the gym, absolutely, even at 75, but he is a fraction of his former bodybuilding self. Seen Michael Jordan lately? The goat is now 59 years old. He's getting a little soft around the middle. And he may be the goat of basketball, but you know what? He's a grandfather goat now. 
He's, he literally does have grandchildren. Okay. So in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's this thought-provoking statement in chapter 7. I usually quote it when I'm doing a funeral. It says this, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Better to go to a funeral than a wedding reception, at least in one sense. Why? Because this is the end of all humanity and the living will lay it to heart. We need to lay it to heart that we're all gonna die, that I'm gonna die, that you're gonna die. Death is like the smelling salts of the world. Smelling salts are no fun, but they are effective. So we need to consider our end and lay it to heart to gain a heart of wisdom so that we live wisely. The prayer in Psalm 90, the prayer of Moses, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Death is the great enemy, isn't it? We hate it. It's an intruder. It's a thief. It's a destroyer. It's an insult. Like our bodies are going to be worm food. It's the great and final separator of life and relationships with loved ones. So I'm, I'm not trying to pour salt in any wounds or, or be melodramatic here. I'm just saying we, we f- f- seldom look death in the face like we ought to. So listen, a time will come when you will hold your grandchild for the last time. You will see your friend for the last time. For some of us in this room, we will never be any healthier than we are right now. We are all living on a shrinking chunk of ice in the middle of the ocean of time. And that ice is quickly melting away. And we're going to drown. We fear it, don't we? I mean, I've struggled on and off at different times, especially there was a couple years where I had just angst over death and fear of death, late 20s, early 30s. So the unknown, the finality, the suffering. And then we know we're guilty. We've failed to live up to God's standard. Our sin, our failures, our remorse, regrets kill us before we die makes us nervous and fearful. Hamlet said, conscience does make cowards of us all. Or T.S. Eliot writes, not what we call death, but what beyond death is not death, we fear, we fear. And we should, right? I mean, the writer to the Hebrews, the book we're Looking at here for Advent in chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. So not only is death coming for each and every one of us, but so is judgment. And we cannot stand before God's all-seeing eye and pass his bar of scrutiny. But into this fearful mess, the Son of God came. So Christmas is not about sentimentalism or an escape from the harsh realities here under the sun, you know, with overly cheery carols, even though those are out there. 
Advent actually takes us by the hand and leads us to face life in all of its harsh reality and declares the good news of Jesus that deals head on with our deepest, deepest problems. So again, series in Advent, if you're here maybe for the first time with us this morning, um, this is the third of five messages in Hebrews where we're looking at the glory of Christ, the one who came. That's what Advent means, coming. He came the first time, took on flesh and blood. So we're, we're wanting to like, have our eyes peeled. Lord, open our eyes to see wonderful things, glorious things in the face of your dear son. So we've looked at chapter one, one to three. Last week, we looked at chapter two, verses five to 10. And this morning, we're gonna look at chapter two, verses 14 to 18. So if you're not there already, you're gonna wanna turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter two, beginning in verse 14. <clears throat> if you are using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1002. So we're just going to dive right in here. Let's look first at what this passage says about the first coming of Christ, the first advent. Okay, point number one, advent. Look at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That clearly speaks of the first coming of Christ, right? Describes what happened. Look down in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to be made like us. And then in verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. That's because he took on flesh. It's because he walked in our shoes. He suffered like we suffer. He was tempted like we are tempted. So the children there in verse 14, that's you and me, Picking up on the word children in verse 13 where the writer is quoting an Old Testament passage and speaking of the children. So we human beings are made of flesh and blood. We're weak and vulnerable. And he likewise partook of the same things. He became weak and vulnerable like us. He didn't bark orders from his cosmic den. He didn't deal with our deepest problems at a distance remotely. No, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. If he was gonna save us, it was absolutely necessary. Only a human being could represent us and be our substitute. And only God could deliver us from sin and death and hell. So not only did the first advent make it possible for the God-man to save us, it also means he's able to help us in our suffering and temptation because he's been in our skin. He's walked in our shoes. And so he's thus a sympathetic savior, which is the theme next Sunday from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 16, 14 to 16. So this Advent, this first coming, is described, and then the writer starts to tick off purposes. Why did he come? Okay, he came. Why did he come? So we're going to look at these purposes of the incarnation, or be, the 
purposes of the first advent of Christ. Why did he come? Why did he take on flesh and blood? Why did he live and suffer and endure temptation and die? You're going to see five different purposes in these five verses, okay? We're going to consider all of them, but we're actually not going to go in the order that the text, you know, they appear in the text. Instead, we're going to consider them theologically. Like, what's the order as far as this, then leads to this, then leads to this, then leads to this? Here, just so you can see what I'm saying. Let me point out the five first. 2.14. Do you see that word, that? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's the first purpose. 2.15. That he might deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Look down in verse 17. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Again in verse 17. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. It's number four. And then the last one is not as explicitly stated, but it's there nonetheless. You can see it in verse 18. He came to help us. Do you see it? Verse 17, he helps. Actually, 16, he helps. 17, he helps. And 18, he is able to help. So that's the third purpose, to help those who are being tempted. So there's the five purposes we're going to start first with the two that we find in verse 17, so that he might become a high priest to make propitiation. So then we're going to back up to verse 14, that he might destroy the the devil, then to 15, that he might deliver us from slavery to fear of death, and then finally we'll consider that helping purpose in verses 17 and 18. All right, so point number two, propitiation. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to. He had to be made like us in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful, faithful high priest in service to God. Well, what was a high priest for? Think about it. A high priest made atonement for the people. He was a mediator between God and people. He represented the people before God and mediated God's atonement to the people. You know, the sprinkling of the blood. So Jesus' full humanity meant that he suffered and was tempted like we are so that he could become a merciful and sympathetic high priest. So he was perfectly faithful to God. He was He is also the perfectly reliable, faithful mediator for us. So he's a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Why then did he become this merciful, faithful high priest? Well, another purpose, a further purpose, this is really what the high priestly work is pointing to. It's so that he would make propitiation for the sins of the people. So becoming the high priest is really just a means to an end. The greater purpose is to make propitiation. Well, that's a big word. What does that mean? What's propitiation? Propitiation is a matter of averting or appeasing or absorbing, dealing with and turning away divine wrath. So in a pagan context, you know, gods tend to be a little bit moody, you know, they kind of wake up on the wrong side of the bed and they get angry and you've got to make sure you like make the sacrifice to appease the God, 
and you, you feed the God and make sure you stay on the God's good side and then you know your crops will grow and you'll be fertile and have lots of kids and all of this stuff. So you kind of have to dance to make sure that God is happy with you. You've got to avert and appease their wrath. That's the background for the word propitiation. Anybody bothered by that? If we just apply that to Christianity? Do we need to do that? Do we need to kind of dance around and make sure we get on God's good side so he doesn't zap us with a lightning bolt like Zeus? No, there's nothing crude or crass here. Though, sadly, some, you know, kind of liberal theologians will call this view of the cross cosmic child abuse. That is wickedly blasphemous. So reject any of those caricatures of the character of God. You know, oh, God is this angry, you know, wrathful, hair-trigger temper in the Old Testament, and the Son, you know, gets the Father to cool down by way of the cross so that God's disposition can change from wrath to love. No! Propitiation for us as Christians is so wonderful and sweet and profound. So... John Stott wrote a, just a classic book called The Cross of Christ. Listen what he says here. This is so helpful. God does not love us because Christ died for us. So it's not us doing the propitiation dance to try to appease his wrath. And it's not even the son doing that to try to change his father's mind to get him to cool off toward us. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. If it's God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, because we're really guilty, and this is his just opposition and condemnation towards sin. It's got to be dealt with. If it is God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, it is God's love which did the propitiating. Think about it. For God so loved the world that he gave. God demonstrates his love in that while we were still sinners. He didn't go from wrath to love. His love dealt with his wrath so that he could justly love us and be merciful to us. So Stott goes on. It is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self, in his own son when he took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. And then one more paragraph from him. The concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. You could be like God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that beautiful? 
the love of God propitiated the wrath of God so that the justice of God could be upheld while the mercy and love of God could be poured out on us guilty, hell-deserving sinners. He had to be made like us in every way so that he could take our place and bring us this grace. So to use the language of the text that we looked at last week, verse 10, how fitting. It was fitting in bringing many sons to glory that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It had to be this way. It's the only way. So first two purposes of the first advent, that he might become the, the high priest that we needed, that he might make propitiation for our sins. Now the third purpose in verse 14. Okay, we're gonna go back up to verse 14. And again, the reason why we're looking at it in this order is that verse 14 and 15 are the results of that propitiation work. Okay, so propitiation did this work of defanging the devil, okay, or destroying the power of the devil. Look at point number three, destruction, beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partake of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Well, first off, I mean, you might be asking, why does the devil have the power of death? Doesn't God have the power of death? Well, yes, God him, himself is ultimately in charge of death, but the devil uses death ever since the garden to threaten and manipulate and enslave us. So prior to the work of Christ, prior to the first advent, the devil could hang death over our heads with great threatening power. He gained that power first by denying the judgment God had warned of. In the day you eat of it, you, you will surely die. You'll not surely die. And then once Adam and Eve ate, and ever since, he wags his finger at us as the accuser, and he condemns us. And he's right. We can't stand before the judgment of God on our own merits. We are guilty and condemned, and he loves to remind us of it and control us with that. As one writer, W. Michaelis, wrote, death is the rebel's henchman who bludgeons humanity into submission. But God, but Christmas, but the first advent, the Son of God came to destroy the one who has the power of death. Okay, so how did Jesus destroy the power of the devil? I mean, isn't he still prowling around like a roaring lion, you know, wreaking havoc? Well, the word that's translated destroy here would probably better be translated rendered powerless or impotent, you could say. So you could say that Satan, even though he's like a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, seeking whom he may devour, he is a chained lion. Satan can try to intimidate and bully and threaten us with death, but death has lost its sting because our sin has been taken care of. Our sin is the biggest problem with death because then death leads to judgment and condemnation forever. But if our sin is dealt with, then death, even though it's still an enemy and we hate it, it's a doorway. So, 
There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and the devil can only roar. He's defanged. He can accuse, but he cannot condemn you if you are in Christ. Anybody remember I used Pilgrim's Progress, the, the last scene of them going through death? But earlier on in the story, after Pilgrim is released of his burden of his sins, he's kind of like, you know, floating six inches off the ground. But then he hears from these two guys, timorous and mistrust, that there's lions up ahead. And he's scared. And he's like, how am I going to get past the lions to get to House Beautiful, right? And he goes and he turns the bend and he sees them there and he's, you know, scared and trembling. But at the door, the porter bids him come and says, they're chained. You don't have to fear. So as long as he stayed on the path, the lions couldn't get him, which is kind of a picture of the defanged lion. He certainly continues to roar, but he cannot condemn us. So if our sin has been dealt with, if God's wrath has been propitiated, if we've been reconciled to God, then Satan has no real power over us any longer. That's not to say he won't try. And that's not to say that we won't succumb to his, you know, spiritual warfare. We can easily succumb to his attempts, can't we? Which is why we need this passage, right? We need to be reminded of the results of the first coming of Jesus. We need to be reminded that he came to destroy the power of death and the one who holds it. So he's going to try. And a couple of ways that he will do that the devil will either try to scare you and kind of keep pulling the false alarm of fear and closing horizons and, you know, trying to freak you out and become a slave of anxiety and fear, or he will try to lull you to sleep so that you avoid the thought of death and just coast through life. He actually wins if our souls operate in either fight mode or flight mode. So if he can get you to fight your fear of death by anxiously being a slave to busyness and keep the volume up because we don't want to have to face, you know, our mortality and, you know, we're striving and the next thing we're trying to like, you know, set up little hopes so that we have something to look forward to and something to look forward to and, you know, oh, it's going to be so terrible if we don't have something to look forward to because then we're going to be hopeless. So he will try to do that to keep you from experiencing the freedom from the fear of death that Jesus died to win. Or if he can get you to flee and avoid death at all costs, put like an entertainment anesthetic IV in your arms so that you hardly ever face the reality of your impending suffering and death. And if you're kind of lulled to sleep, then you're never going to be running to the death killer and the hope giver and the devil wins again. So we need to be not unaware of his schemes. Blaise Pascal wrote this, they fear the most trifling things, foresee and feel them, and the same man who spends so many days and nights in fury and despair at losing some office or at some imaginary affront to his honor is the very one who knows that he is going to lose everything through death but feels neither anxiety nor emotion. It's a monstrous, monstrous thing to see one and the same heart at once so sensitive to minor things and so strangely insensitive to the greatest. So we dare not allow ourselves to be either lulled to sleep 
you know, avoidance out of fear of death, or we, we dare not allow ourselves become nervously anxious and we're scrambling to stay busy and line up all these things to stave off the fearful thought of the inevitable. We need to lay it to heart so that we gain a heart of wisdom so that we wisely walk through this life and run the race that's set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus. In the words of the Apostle Paul, 1 John 3, 8, praise God, this is true. The reason the Son of God appeared, first advent, was to destroy the works of the devil. And we need to be reminded of that. And that leads to the fourth purpose, deliverance. Look again at verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might, look at the second purpose there in verse 15, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So we saw last week that human beings were created to rule over creation, right? Genesis 1, 26, 28. Kind of, because of sin, we're actually slaves, subject to Satan and slaves of our fear of death. Death is this silent slave master. It rules from underneath. Fight or flight, remember? You know, pills and anti-aging cream and working out and all kinds of stuff, which maybe those things aren't bad in and of themselves, but easily we can just be trying to fight or flee this reality through these different avenues. But Jesus came down to give us confidence and courage and freedom from fear, even in the face of death. He, he came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's a real Christmas story. It's not some, again, sentimental or escapist version that's just out of step with our experience in this harsh, threatening, pain-filled world. No. This is why Jesus came. He came to free us from the fear of death. It's kind of ironic because as the death of Christ appeared, at least to the first disciples, to be a victory for death and the devil, it seemed to blow up the hopes of the disciples. Instead, though, what did it do? It secured them. So as we sung, death has lost its sting. Jesus has dealt death its death blow. Jesus came and lived and suffered and died to make you and me, if you are in Christ, if you are Christian, he died to make you fearless in the face of death. To deliver you and me from the fear of death. We can have death-defying faith. Anybody want that? I do. As we sung earlier, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. In strength you reign. Death doesn't reign anymore. Forever let your church proclaim Christ is risen from the dead, trampling over death by death. Oh, death. Paul taunts death in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Oh, church, come, stand in the light. The glory of God has defeated the night. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive. So listen, are you afraid of death? If so, first off, I would say, are you a Christian? Jesus is the only one that can deli deliver you from death because Jesus is the only one who can deal with your sins and make propitiation for your sins. He's the only one. So if you're standing on any other merit, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. 
So come to Christ. And he can set you free from fear of death because you will not. If you are in Christ, if you, are, you turn from your sins, repent. You trust in Christ. I need a savior. I can't save myself. You alone can save me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus paid for those sins on the cross. And you, it's, it's done and over with. It's finished. And you are now reconciled to God. And when you die, like if you go have to have brain surgery, you're either going to wake up in that hospital room, recovery room, or you're going to wake up and see the face of Jesus. Death doesn't ultimately win. Death to live as Christ and die as gain is what Paul said, Philippians 1. So if you're afraid of death first, let me ask you, are you a Christian? Trust Jesus, he can set you free. That's why he came. If you are a Christian, listen, this was me. Like I said, I, I think we don't talk about this kind of stuff enough. You can take that fear to Jesus. He is a sympathetic high priest and deliverer. He's been there. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember? And if setting us free from our fear of death is one of the very reasons he came, don't you think he's both willing and able to help you? Yes, take your fears to him. He wants to help you. He can help you. He came to help you. Which leads us to point number five, the help. He came to help. Look at verse 16. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, why did the Son of God come? He came to help us. It's repeated three times, even though it's two different words. But let me just say this. The word for help has some really important connotations that we miss with this translation, okay? So look back at verse um, 16 and 17. It's the same word in those two instances. And look how it's translated in Hebrews 8, okay? So put that verse up, Hebrews 8, 9. Do we have that one? No? Oh, sorry. Maybe that's probably my fault. So if you want to flip ahead to Hebrews 8, 9. Um, it says this. Um, On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So he's talking about the Exodus, right? That word is in there. Which word is it translating? It's actually translating the word took. Okay, so the word is usually translated to seize or to lay hold of something. And in chapter 8, it's referring to the way that God bared his strong arm and took his people out of Egypt, delivering them. He took them out of the house of slavery. And he took them through the wilderness and he intended to take them all the way home. Okay, so what? Well, the Son of God took on flesh and blood in order to deliver us from slavery, the house of slavery, to sin and death. Just like God took Israel by the hand, lead them out of Egypt, Jesus takes us by the hand, the offspring of Abraham, to bring us out, set us free from our fears. So 
This is like a greater exodus. Jesus is accomplishing a better exodus. He became human so that he could lead, just like Moses, only better, out of the house of slavery, through the wilderness of this world, to the promised land, to the eternal rest. If you know the book of Hebrews, where does it go in chapters three and four? Moses and the rest. This is a better exodus. Moses identified with the people in order to deliver them. Jesus took on flesh and blood in order to deliver us. Moses was not ashamed to call them his brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers so that he can deliver us. So big picture of Hebrews is this better exodus. And if this is all true, then don't drift. Don't wander away from Jesus. Fix your eyes on him and run the races set before you all the way home. That's where he's taken us. He came to bring many sons to glory. He's able to help us by his omnipotent hand. He reaches out. He lays hold of us to support us and strengthen us and sustain us through all of our sufferings and temptations and the pressures to shrink back in unbelief. He's able to help us in temptation, in failure. He's a merciful high priest. So that arm that lays hold of us, I love these passages, John 10, 27 to 30, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. You don't have to fear death. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Or Jude 24 and 25. Now to him who is able, isn't that wonderful and glorious? He is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So he gets all the glory. So with this limp, crucified arm and a bloody, lifeless hand tacked to a tree, the Son of God stretched out a strong arm and took away the power of death from the devil and takes hold of you and me and leads many sons to glory. He's able, he's strong, and he's willing, he's sympathetic. What more do we want? What more do we need? He moves toward us with sympathy and help when we're tempted and fearful. Let's not move away from him when we're struggling. Let's not doubt his faithfulness and think he's abandoned us. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. So a couple things to close with here. Listen to the first question, the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, what is our only hope in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the kind of stuff that'll give you death-defying faith. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Romans 8, all true. Amen to what Jemmy read. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's why you memorize those catechism things, right? So that you can call that up when you're struggling and you're suffering and you're tempted. I love this illustration. Donald Gray Barnhouse, was, he pastored 10th Pres up in Philly, like from 1927 to 1960, I think, okay? So... 
When he was pastoring there, his wife, this would be early on in his time there, she was only in her late 30s. She died of cancer, leaving him with four children younger than 12. And apparently they were driving, he with the children, to the funeral, and there was a large truck that pulled past them in the left lane, and it cast its shadow over them. And Barnhouse asked his children, would you rather be run over by the truck or the shadow of the truck? His 11-year-old answered, shadow, of course. Their father concluded, well, that's what has happened to your mother. Only the shadow of death has passed over her because death itself ran over Jesus. So do you see the glory of Christ in the first advent? And all of human history is rushing unstoppably to the day when Jesus comes again, second advent. And 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at his second coming, at the second advent, God's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Thanks be to God for the first coming and even so come, Lord Jesus. So we're going we're gonna to close here by singing in Christ alone, which is so fitting. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And while the worship team is coming up, I want to just read you something that is the fruit of some reflection on death over the last couple years. And I quote a number of, you know, poets like scripture, but also poets like um, uh, Shakespeare, Macbeth, John Donne. I'm not going to quote, I'm not going to kind of give reference, but you might hear some of those things. So just listen to this, then we're going to sing, and then we'll, we'll be done. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So teach us to number our days. Memento mori. Remember your death. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. What is your life? A gift, a loan, a mist, a walking shadow. We walk in the valley of death's shadow. The wages of sin is death. Death dwells with us. Death dwells in us. We dwell in death's shadow. Death now reigns, cruel dictator. Death is natural, they tell us, part of living. Death is unnatural. You don't have to tell us. Why must we part with the living? Death is tragic. Tell me a joke. Avoid it. Death is tragic. Shut up with your jokes. Can't avoid it. Death tears us apart, soul from body, body from body, soul from soul. Death is devastating, forces us to live with the presence of absence. Death is an intruder you cannot lock out. Death is an enemy you cannot kill. Death is a destroyer you cannot destroy. Death is a power you cannot weaken. Death is a wake-up call, focuses the mind. Death is a detox clinic, sobers us, sobers us up. 
Death is a preacher. Can it get a witness? Don't stick your fingers in your ears. Death is taboo. Shh. Death's not polite, but it tells the truth. Death is bold, looks you in the eyes. Look away. Don't look away. Death doesn't bargain and takes no bribes. Death is inevitable. No one's getting out alive. Death can't be cheated. Death can be cheated, but it always wins. Death will get you, coming or going. Death is coming and going. Death is a threat. Death is under threat. Death is a tyrant. Death is a servant. Death is a thief. Hold on to your loved ones. But merciless, merciless thief can be a merciful relief. Death is a stalker. Death can be a painfully slow walker. Death is a deadline. But death has a deadline. Death has a shadow. Death is a shadow. Death, death is the end. Death is the beginning. Death is your destiny. Death has a destiny. Death is an insatiable maw eating up your flesh. Death is on God's coming menu, swallowed up in victory. Death stings. Death has lost its sting. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Death defeats. Death is defeated. Death gets the last word. The ground always wins. Jesus gained the ground. He has the last word. Death was impotent against him. He struck death's death blow. Death couldn't hold him. He holds the keys. Death is retreating. It is fleeing and it is fleeting. Death is a vapor. Death will soon breathe its last rattling breath. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death's days are numbered. So teach us to number death's days. Death is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. Death, be not proud. Death, thou shalt die. Death's obituary has been written and death shall be no more.